Please join me in prayer. Father God, thank you for this day and our time together. Thank you for this church and again that we can come here and worship you so freely. Thank you for sending your son Jesus as it is the greatest joy knowing that you love us enough to have sent him to pay for our sins and that you are sitting on the throne. Lord, I'll admit that I'm increasingly confused by the things that I see all around me, and it often appears that the world is turning upside down, with traditional institutions and even some churches crumbling under the weight of this fallen world. But with all things, we can turn to you, as we're reminded in Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your un- only on your own understanding, but in all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. We know that you're the ultimate architect, and it will be your plan that will prevail and stand the test of eternity. Lord, we pray that our local, state, and national leaders would turn to you and seek your wisdom and guidance as they seek to lead. We continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and everywhere in the world where believers are being persecuted. Lord, we pray for our church and its membership. And I especially pray, Lord, for a hedge of protection on our pastors and staff and all of their families. We live up to teachers of our children in Sunday school and the recent Vacation Bible School, and we thank you for our nursery workers and pray for them as they give these young mothers and fathers a peaceful opportunity to take time to worship, knowing their children are in such good hands. Father, we lift up Bob and Kathy Gerardo in the loss of his mother. We pray for the edge this week with our junior high. We pray for built for a purpose this week for our boys. And we praise and thank you for the birth of Miller Campbell Queen as we celebrate with the happy parents, Wes and Alex. Lord, we lift up again the Save Life ministry and thank you that we can be such a part of this amazing opportunity. And we pray, Lord, for <clears throat> this Tuesday night when they're having a baby shower. Lord, we offer all these things in the, in the perfect, perfect name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's always a joy to be here uh, to preach, and this is my one chance to preach in First Peter as we study through this letter. And I made mention this morning at the eight o'clock service that you know if pastors are allowed to have a favorite book of the Bible, I have sixty-six, and this is one of them. And so I'm really glad to get the chance. This is it's exciting for me. Um, so as I was preparing and thinking about this passage over the past couple of weeks. Um, I, as I'm, it happens to me, I started thinking about Newton's laws of motion. I don't know if you, you, you guys are like me, but I tend to start to think in terms of physics and how, how bodies move. Maybe it's because I've got four little boys, and so Newton's laws of motion are very evident to me um, in my life. You know, the first law, an object in motion, stays in motion. Um, yes, I see that one often, unless interacted upon by another outside force. Boom, this happens to me all the time. Uh, But the third law of motion is the one that was, my mind went to the third law of motion. And I'll paraphrase it for you. It's It's something like this, that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, right? That for every force, there's some external opposite force that meets it. That's how things move in the world. And what's amazing is that the third law of motion is exactly the reality for people who belong to Jesus. You see, there are two things that are true at once that are equal and opposite, and they are meeting head on at all times. And the first, on the one hand, is this, that Jesus, the savior of his people, the deliverer of God's people, is the Lord. 
He is the true and vindicated king who has been placed as king over all things and all has been subjected under his authority. He's the king over all. He's the king over his people and he is reigning and ruling and defending his people even now. He is ordering all things for their good and for his glory. That's true. And on the other hand, the world fueled by the raging evil one, the unbelieving world is in outright rebellion against the true king. Unbelievers and the evil one fueled is raging, is fueling their rebellion against him. And importantly with that, the world is opposed to the king and all who belong to him. Maybe you've experienced that. And also what's important for us to remember is that we are the church, corporate, universal. So our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are worshiping some underground today are experiencing this head-on collision in ways that we're not. But I would argue increasingly ways that we ought to be ready for. And so Peter in this letter is helping Christians understand how do we live on that line? How do we live in that space where the true, you know, where the reality of the true king overall is meeting head on with a world that's in rebellion against him? That line, Peter would argue, is suffering. It is a life of suffering for the sake of of King Jesus. And so the question that is reverberating in our text and really throughout the whole letter of 1 Peter for those of us who have a firm identity, we're strangers but we belong to the king. We've been given a way to live in this world and so he's asking the question, how ought we to live when suffering for the sake of Jesus comes? That's the question. So before we get there, I want you to pray with me and then we'll read our text and we'll we'll jump in. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit, as we come into your presence this morning, we are attentive and attuned to your word. Lord, we know that your word is the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe Would you pierce the hearts of any unbelievers this morning that they may see you clearly and they may be drawn to you in saving faith. And Lord, we also know that your word is truth. And so please sanctify us, your people, with the truth. Enable us in the power of the spirit to take this word, to apply it into our lives day by day so that we can live faithfully for the sake of King Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, 
those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So how do we live on that line when suffering for the sake of Jesus comes into our lives? That's what's that's the question that's before us. And I think this is exactly what Peter is attempting to do to address God's people both in the original context and for our context today. First Peter's a a letter that's becoming increasingly more important to the church. We have lived for many, many years, especially in the West, in our country, in America, in our culture. It has felt very Christian. Christian principles, Christian background. And though that has been the case, we are increasingly becoming post-Christian. All you have to do is watch a few minutes of TV every day and you will recognize that that's the true case. Watch some reality TV. I dare you. Actually, I don't dare you. Do not do that. Watch a few minutes of the news. Watch a few minutes of any advertisements and you are bombarded with things that are actually opposed to a life faithfully lived for the sake of Jesus. And what's coming for us is more and more actual opposition for our stance as Christians. Before Christianity, to put it in the words of one of our ruling elders on his spectrum of helpfulness, Christianity was not unhelpful. But more and more, day by day, Christianity is seen not as unhelpful, but as harmful, The things that we believe and the way in which we live is starting to become harmful to our culture in their eyes. And when things are harmful, they get opposed. So what Peter wants to do is to prepare us, to make us ready, to give us eyes to see clearly so that we can live well. And he gives us a few things that we're going to see. We're in a Presbyterian church, so there are three things that you will see today. Each of them starting with an H. The first one is this. In order to live well when suffering comes for the sake of Jesus, Peter says, be hungry for what is good. Hunger for what is good. That's the first thing. And you'll see it in the first two verses of our text. He kind of turns in this portion of the letter and he brings out this rhetorical statement. He's like, now listen. Who, who is there to harm you? Who's there to do you any wrong? If you are zealous, and really it's a noun, if you're a zealot for what is good, who is going to bring you any harm if you are a zealot for what is good, right, and true? And what Peter is doing here, he is saying, hey, in your hunger for what's good, this is just good policy. This is just a good proverbial policy to live by, Okay. If you pursue good, then you will receive good, generally speaking. Who's going to harm you if you're a zealot for what is good? Throughout the Old Testament, this idea of being a zealot is sometimes a little bit strange because when you hear of a zealot, what do your, your mind go to? Sometimes it goes to a crazy person. 
someone who's a little bit off their rocker, who is too intent on pursuing something. And Peter's saying, I don't want you to be crazy, but I do want you to be pursuing something with full vigor, like you're attacking it. And I want you to pursue what is good. I want you to live life pursuing what is right and true and beautiful. To be a zealot is to actively pursue a life of faith and and faithfulness from the mundane, like washing the dishes and putting gas in your car and interacting with the attendant or, or when you check out at a grocery store, you live a life of faith, meaning you are acting in such a way towards others and towards the world that shows the goodness of the king. From the mundane to the magnificent, whether you're standing before big crowds or closing a huge deal or you're making a presentation in your fourth grade class, whatever the magnificent thing is in your life, you're to do it with the pursuit of good. This is just good policy. Then he moves on. And Peter, he's like, yeah, here's the good policy. And now let me tell you about the exception. And unfortunately, it is true in the life of faith for those who follow Jesus that the exception is a lot more like the rule. And here's what it is in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. He takes the rhetorical. Who's going to harm you if you do good? The answer ought to be no one. And then he says, but here's the reality. You will suffer for righteousness sake. You will suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. But don't worry because you will be blessed. Peter is tapping into something that he heard Jesus say, and you can see it in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes. Jesus there is teaching. He says, blessed are you when you are persecuted Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Why? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Peter wants you to be encouraged in your hunger for what is good, that when people oppose what is good in you, such as standing firm in God's created order of people being made male and female, or standing for the cause of the poor, seeking justice for them. That's what righteousness means. It means justice and mercy. It's when you are actively pursuing a life that cares for the poor and people oppress you in that way, what Peter is telling you is that that is a sure sign that you are blessed because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Being oppressed for what is good, being opposed for right living in faith is assurance to you that you belong to the king. It's assurance to you that you belong to the one and you have all of the eternal benefits of the victory that Christ has won through his resurrection and ascension and enthronement. And so Peter says, hunger for what is good when suffering comes for the sake of Jesus. Secondly, and this is where I'm going to go a little bit Sandy Wilson. I have a point with subpoints with multiple other points and comments. This is where we'll spend the majority of our time, Okay. The second thing that Peter is saying in this passage, and really this is the thrust, this is the main point, is this. Honor King Jesus in your hearts. This is how we live well in a world gone mad. This is how we live well when suffering comes. Honor King Jesus. 
In verse, the end of 14 and the beginning of 15, this is the main thrust of the whole. This is your primary approach to life. Are you honoring the king? So not, not too long ago, I started to change up some of the way in which I speak to my children. Um, you know, rather than when we have to, when we get the opportunity to move into times of discipline and training in righteousness, rather than saying, hey, stop that, or no, or that's wrong, which I do say those things sometimes, and those are all truth statements, they're true. I started to change the language a little bit, and this text has been a, a, a help. Instead, I'll sit down with whomever it is, and I will say, hey, buddy, what you said did not honor Jesus. What you said did not honor mommy and daddy, and it didn't honor your brother. So I want you instead to say things like this. And it's a small change in the way in which I speak, but it's, it's enacting a profound heart change. It's trying to attune, make my life attune in the way in which I see the world as honoring to the king. Everything I do is either honoring him or dishonoring him. Everything I say either honors King Jesus or it doesn't. There's no gray area. What Peter's encouraging us to do is to make that the approach of our life. The decisions that we make, the way in which we speak, the way in which we work and interact with our coworkers and the people over us, kids at school, the way in which you interact with people that you're friends with and the people that you won't let in. Does it honor the king or does it not? That's the whole, the whole thrust. Because why? Because Jesus, honor Christ Jesus, the deliverer of his people as the Lord, as God himself, as Yahweh, who is holy. In the Old Testament, when we talked about God's holiness, yes, we mean his transcendence. He's the creator. He's over all things. He's totally other. But also when you think about holiness, it's, the fact of that when you get close to him, you come into his presence, you understand his grace and his mercy. To set him as holy means to make him preeminent in your life. I went to Covenant College, go Scots. The motto is in all things, Christ preeminent. Are we setting Jesus at the forefront of everything that we do? When you're driving to work is the purpose of your life because he is the preeminent king. And I want to honor him. When you're walking to class, is it because Jesus is the preeminent king and I want to honor him? This is what Peter's inviting us to do. And there's a couple of ways. Well, there's three ways that we honor the king in real time. This is how we do it. First, fear him as the true king. Fear him as the true king. In verse 14, at the end... Peter says, have no fear of them. The them is probably the ones who would harm you for doing good. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And so what Peter is saying is what we have to do if we want to honor King Jesus is we have to set our fears in the right way. I'll be honest with you. One of my great fears in life is that people will not think well of me. I'm a man pleaser. That is, uh, that's how I am to my core. And so I have a great temptation to not say anything that will displease someone. It's tough when you're a pastor. <laughs> I've been practicing this June, talked to Threshold and King's Table. I've been trying my hardest to step on people's toes. 
I don't even know if I've done that very well, but it's, it's a great fear of mine. In fact, I think it's a great fear for a lot of God's people. See, what, what Peter does here is he's, he's quoting Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 8, where Isaiah was coming to the king of Judah and he was saying, do not fear this coalition, this northern coalition of Assyria and the, and the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel who wants to come and attack you. Do not fear them. Honor the Lord. Honor Yahweh as holy and fear him. So Peter is pulling that quote and he's saying, this is exactly what's true of God's people. And every time when we're faced with all kinds of opposition, do not fear man. What can man do to me? Set your fears in the right way. Reject the paranoia that people will not like me. I'm going to be honest with you this morning. There are people who don't like you. There are people who don't like me. There are people who are going to look at the way in which you teach and train your children. And there are going to be people who look at the way in which you, you honor the sanctity of being a man or being a woman. There are going to be people who look at you and the way in which you speak about the truths of the Bible. And they're not going to like you. And Peter says, that's okay. Don't re just reject that paranoia because if you don't, it'll just lead you to more fear. And you'll start to believe that outside forces like other people are actually controlling your life and livelihood. And what that will do then is that will tempt you to succumb to social pressures so that you can regain some control. You'll start to conceal your faith. You'll compromise on your ethics a little bit so that you can regain whatever semblance of control you thought you had. And he says, don't do that. Fear Jesus as the king. And in Isaiah, I have to say this, in Isaiah 8, that passage begins with this statement. God is with us. The reason why we fear Jesus and not man is because we have the holy God who is altogether lovely and gracious, who is with us by the power of his spirit. That's why we fear him. Secondly, what Peter says is, fear him as a true king, but also we have to live, we actually have to live as if he's the risen king. You remember in 1 Peter chapter 1, this is what he said about us, about those who belong to God. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. My friends, if you belong to Jesus, you have been born again. There is a new reality that covers every square inch of your life. You are a new creation. You are not your own. You have been bought with the price of his blood. You belong wholly unto your savior, Jesus Christ. So what he is saying is you, he is assuming that that is who you are. He's assuming that this is a life of goodness and righteousness because you are another person. And that kind of life is a life of hope. It's a life that is looking to the risen king, knowing that he's going to bring the consummation of his kingdom, knowing that he's going to set the world right. See, in Acts, they were going about proclaiming the good news of Jesus, and they were, it, was as, it was as if they were turning the world upside down. And actually, no, we're turning the world right side up. That's a life of hope, knowing that Jesus is set about that business. In the Old Testament, hope was kind of this, 
It was emotional. It was a, a, a verb in motion. It meant to be stretched out toward God. That's exactly what Peter is inviting us to do. Live your life stretched out toward God, because when you do that, you'll be stretched out towards others. One of my favorite little books that we read as a family is uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, but The Little Pilgrim's Progress. My boys are not quite ready for the full John Bunyan, if you know what I mean. So we do The Little Pilgrim's Progress, and I love it. Sibs loves The Giant of Despair. (laughs) I'm like, dude, that dude is terrifying. I don't want to talk about The Giant of Despair. But what I love about this book is it simplifies, and one of my favorite figures in the whole story is Hopeful. Hopeful is the friend of Christian, I'm going to get Terry, who travels with him all the way until they get to the river of death and he helps him as he's going across this river. And Hopeful is there because it's the embodiment of what the hope of the resurrection of Jesus does for us as believers. When we are living life and we're experiencing a little pushback for the things that we hold dear, for the things that we hold fast to, Hope reminds us of God's faithfulness in past hard circumstances. When they're in the castle of doubt, Hopeful says, Christian, don't you remember all that God has done and brought you through? Have faith. And because he has been faithful, he hope brings to mind that God will indeed be faithful again. That's the living hope that you have in Christ. I feel the ground brother, and it is good. That's what hope does for us. So we have to live, actually. We have to actually do good. We're created for good works. We actually have to pursue what's right, just, and merciful. So we have to ask ourselves the question, are we kind of pursuing what's good? Are we kind of living as a Christian? Or have we concealed our faith, compromised our ethics just a little bit so that we can get what we want? Because we're a little bit afraid of man and we're a little bit afraid of what might happen. And so we're clinging on to control. And another little thing that he says in verse 16, he says, we do all of this having a good conscience. For all the kids in the room, this is, this is something I want you to hear. So if you're a kid or if you're kind of like one, like me, this is what I want you to hear. When you, when the Bible says for you to have a good conscience, to live and have a good conscience, God is encouraging you to be a person of your word, to be a person of integrity. That means you do what you say you'll do. You show mercy. You act in kindness. You treat other people with the same fierce grace that God has treated you. That's what it means to have a good conscience before God. That is a life of hope. The third thing in the way in which we honor the king quickly is you have to be ready to defend the hope that's in you. Defend the hope that you have for the glory of the king. How do we do this? Well, Peter says you've got to always be prepared. Honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense. I remember um, when I was going through ordination, uh, many of you uh, have heard stories of people going through ordination. They're terrifying. Um, But when you're going through ordination in our denomination, you have to take several exams, both verbal and written. And they cover things like the English Bible, 
the whole thing. Uh, the sacraments, your general theology, the book of church order. You have to read the BCO. Do you want to know what the opening line is? Jesus Christ is king and head over the church. Man, it's a great line. Makes you want to read the rest of the BCO. <clears throat> so you have to read all this stuff and prepare. And I remember sitting on the couch with Liz after we put Bridger to bed and um, she would just... I had about a million flashcards and she would just roll through the flashcards and you know she would be like who was the fourth king of Judah and I was like ah a Boam somebody somebody a Boam she was like wrong (laughs) and I was terrified I'm like they're never gonna let me in and they did (laughs) friends the way in which the way in which you live this is practice always being prepared. Here's, here's what you do. Here's how you do those kinds of flashcards. Let first, let the spirit bear witness to your heart. How do you be prepared to make a defense? Let the spirit of the living God make a defense to your own heart. Peter said, or or Paul says in Romans eight, that the spirit bears witness to our spirit. When we're in gathered worship as God's people, when the Bible is open, when we sing and pray in communion with him, the spirit of God is bearing witness to you that it's all true, that Jesus is the king, that he is reigning over all things, that he will bring it to consummation for his glory and that we will get to enjoy him in his fullness. Do not forsake the spirit bearing witness to you because you can't be prepared otherwise. Moreover, do the flashcards with your family, with your neighbors, with the faithful brothers and sisters. How, how often do you go to a restaurant or you go to someone's house and, and you're just there talking and you're talking about all kinds of stuff. And I'll be honest with you, I find myself there and we end up talking about stuff that does not matter. It is pointless. Now we're having a good time and we're having a good conversation but I wanna challenge you to bear witness to one another of God's goodness and faithfulness. Give each other a reason for the hope that you have. How else can the body of Christ be prepared to come into contact with an unbelieving world if we're not practicing together? Instead of the trivialities that we might talk about, instead invite people to say, hey, how has God been faithful to you this week? Tell me that story. What's, what's the story of, of God's goodness to you and your family this week? What's the story of God's goodness in your work this week? How has he proved faithful? Bear witness to each other. And then when you meet that line of suffering, when the, the true line of suffering, where the, the true reality of the risen king and us belonging to him in an unbelieving world and raging opposition meet, here's what you say. Or here's how you say it, actually, Peter says. Be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. What Peter is saying is, let the tone of your words match the tone of your life. You see, I have a problem with anger. I didn't realize it until I had kids. And um, somebody yesterday, I was telling telling them this, and they were like, Really? I couldn't, I couldn't imagine you being angry. I'm like, yeah, that's because I hide it really well. Friends, we're like that. Sometimes the tone of our life doesn't match the tone of our words. 
So when we're interacting with unbelievers, we want to give them absolutely zero reason to disbelieve our life or our words. The meekness and gentleness of Christ is in you because you have his spirit. You're able to provide verbal answer to why God is good and to do so even when they're like, hey, I don't like the thing that you believe about marriage. That seems harmful to society. I don't like the things that you believe about the poor. That seems harmful to our kind of way of life culturally. And you say, well, let me tell you the story of God's goodness to me in that, in, in that, in that very thing. Gentleness and respect. Here's, do you, this, it's really a question of how do you see people? Do you see people as violent enemies Or do you see people as lost sheep in need of a shepherd? Do you see them as hurting humans in need of the balm of Christ? Do you see them as confused children who need the sure and steady word of a good father? If we see the unbelieving world that's in rebellion to King Jesus in that way, then we can't help but be gentle and respectful like we would to our own children. We would want the tone of our mouth to match the tone of our life. And then why do we do this? Because Peter says, when you are slandered, when you are reviled for the things that you believe and the actions that you take in the world, they are coming. When it happens and they revile your life well lived for the glory of King Jesus because you belong to him. They're going to be put to shame. And here's what shame means. Shame doesn't mean that they're going to have this overwhelming sense of guilt and typically what we think about with shame. Shame in the Old Testament, which I think is what Peter's pulling off of, shame in the Old Testament meant something different. It means that they've come to the end of anything they could offer. They've seen your life, which has brought them to ask the questions. Hey, hold on a second. Why do you believe that? And why do you do that? And then you give them such a calm, gentle, respectful answer that just illuminates the glory and grace of King Jesus. And then they're left helpless. They've got nothing left to say. Their status is now low because they've got nothing else to say. That's what we want because there's only two options at that point. Either they're going to turn and run and they're going to eventually face the wrath of the king or they're going to turn and run to him. And that's the opportunity that we all are going to have and some of us already do. Okay, the third thing, and this is what closes and brings us to the table. This is how we live well when suffering comes. It's to humble ourselves under the will of God. Humble ourselves under the will of God. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. This is the ground. This supports the whole thing. When you see four in the New Testament, typically that means he's grounding all that's gone before. It's a good foundation. And here it is. In God's eyes, it is better to suffer now for doing what he commands and for doing what honors him than it will be to suffer eternally for doing evil. The suffering that we engage in now results in glory to come. For those who are in opposition to the king, glory now results in eternal suffering to come. And what stands in the middle is God's will. What God wills is not necessarily that we suffer. What God wills is that you live faithfully, 
that you honor the king in all that you say and do, even if and especially when suffering comes. Because it proclaims the goodness of God and his faithfulness to you. Richard Sibbs, for whom my second son is named, said this, and this is just the best way to say it. So this is how we're going to close. This is what he says. In losses and crosses, you have contentment in God. You will fetch what you lose out of the love of God. You will say, yes, this and that is taken from me, but God is mine. I can fetch more good from him by faith than I could ever lose in this world. So how do we live when suffering comes? We hunger for what is good. Honor Jesus in all that you say and do and submit, humble yourself to the will of God. Live in his grace. Honor his name, knowing that all things come from his fatherly hand. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word and we ask that as we come to this table, that you will remind us of whose we are, that you will empower us by the spirit to live such a life. And Lord, help us to day by day prepare ourselves, our children, our friends here to meet that line of suffering when it comes. Lord, we know that these two things are true, that you are the king overall and that the world is in opposition to you. Soon you will consummate your kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth will come. All opposition will be removed and tears and suffering will be gone. But until then, sustain us by your grace. And we pray this in your name. Amen.